lead us and guide us. Call our names. We will walk to you. And together we'll do things we can't even possibly imagine. Be with us this morning as we hear again your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Reverend Dr. Brett Webb Mitchell is an openly gay Presbyterian pastor. He's the pastor of the Community of Pilgrims Presbyterian Church here in Portland. Is it in Portland? Oh, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I thought so. <laughs> and uh, he is also on staff in the Oregon-Idaho Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. He is our LGBTQ advocacy coordinator. And when he heard what was going on with Clementine, he reached out to me and said, hey, what can I do for you? When can I, when can I fill in for you? And I looked at my calendar, and I was trying to organize myself, and I said, how's March 3rd? And he looked at his calendar, and he said, let me figure a few things out, but I'd be happy to do it for you. Was not even thinking about General Conference when I asked Brett to come and preach, but here he is today, and I'm excited um, for the word that he has for us this morning. So will you welcome my friend and brother, Reverend Dr. Brett Webb Mitchell. Good job. <clears throat> Morning. <laughs> Let us pray. God of the mountaintop, God of community, God who follows us where'er we go on this pilgrimage of life. Speak to us through ancient words that provide hope in a day and age in which issues and decisions are made yet once again, dividing people, holding people hostage, in which we need to be reminded that through it all, grace prevails. Hope shines and love wins. The people of God said, Amen. Well, it has been a heck of a week. <laughs> As Rick shared with you, not only am I an openly gay Presbyterian pastor, I am the only openly gay pastor in the state of Oregon. And in my capacity as an organizing pastor for a small fellowship, while also serving as the LGBTQ advocacy coordinator of the Oregon-Idaho United Methodist Church Conference, in light of the decision that was recently made in the so-called, specially called, General Conference in St. Louis, to say that I was filled with emotions not touched upon for some time is to put it lightly. When word came last Sunday, last Sunday, regarding the, quote, sense, unquote, of where there was a preference, where there was a priority given to certain plans that had been presented both by the Commission on the Way Forward, but by also other voices within the United Methodist Church. You know those plans darn well. Traditionalist plan, one church plan, simple plan, a connectional church plan. 
when the traditionalist plan or so-called traditionalist plan seemed to be suddenly get the higher priority than the others from the get-go, and as the events unfolded throughout Tuesday afternoon into evening, well, the reaction from both within and outside the United Methodist Church was either one of elation by some, depression by others, and downright anger by many others. Like other mainline denominations before the United Methodist Church, the vote showed the division that is already within the denomination. And it isn't over the struggle of LGBTQ people being allowed to claim our rights as being human beings created like every straight cisgender person in this congregation as a child in the image of God. It was about the hypocrisy of those who claim grace for themselves but inflict judgment on everyone else, especially upon one group in which all we want to do is simply love the one that God brought into our lives. As a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, I watched the drama unfold in St. Louis from my office in Portland, Oregon in the conference center. And I re-experienced what we Presbyterians as well went through only a decade earlier. Y'all have been into this for 47 years. We're, we did it for 40 years. For over 40 years, those of us who are self-identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, or intersex, were beaten up by the same hate-filled politics of my denomination, which were also evident and rose to the challenge to be loud, to be all about the win for the power and their glory. Like your general conference, our general assembly after general assembly, ancient verses of Leviticus were used and Romans were used, pulled out of their historical context and weaponized to hurt us to hurt me, to destroy the denomination's unity and sense of connectionalism. We use the very same language in Presbyterian circles as you do in Methodist circles. Anyone who was a self-identified LGBTQ person and ordained or waiting to be ordained were threatened with the dark shadow of charges delivered and impending trials to come. And we were given the option, once the charges came our way, and the judicial process started along the way, of being either rebuked, censured, or defrocked if we sought to be ordained as a minister, an elder, or a deacon. It got to be so chaotic. One year, one year, new rules in our book of order, much like your book of discipline, in which these words came suddenly into the flow that in order to be ordained as a minister of the word and sacrament, an elder or a deacon in my denomination, one must practice fidelity in marriage and chastity in singleness. Code words directed at those of us who were practicing self-avowed LGBTQ persons. In other words, it was okay if I was gay, but I couldn't have sex. Or kiss my partner. Or put my hand in his hand. Then two years later, simply being a faithful disciple of Jesus was all that needed to be ordained. And that's where it has stood since we last met ten years ago and made that decision. 
When living in the closet for part of that time and then out, either way, I lived in the fear of losing my livelihood. I felt abused, belittled, and hated by the church in which I had been ordained and called to serve Christ as a minister since 1983. Up until 2011, when the Presbyterian Church finally and officially changed our ordination standards, allowing openly LGBTQ people like myself to be ordained and installed as pastors, the only succor I drew was knowing that Brother Jesus, Brother Jesus loved me just as I am. Loved me even though the denominational institutional structure abhorred my very existence. Casting me aside as if I were trash. Someone who was baptized as an infant, grew up in a perf- with perfect attendance in Sunday schools, led more youth groups than I can count, seminary educated, went to Princeton, Harvard, Carolina, and Duke, have a PhD in theology and education from Harvard and Duke and Carolina, Suddenly, I was placed into the role of being second-class citizen in God's realm simply because I loved a man. I drew hope from the psalmist who reminded me that I, too, am created in the image of God, as are you, knit together in my mother's womb. Quote, wonderfully, wonderful are my works, wonderfully am I made. Psalm 139. I experienced the stinging phrase, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching when I was denied tenure at Duke Divinity School, a United Methodist Church seminary where I taught for over 10 years until I was outed. That experience taught me the nuts and bolts of social activism in the life of an institution and the heartbreaking, backbreaking work of seeking truth and justice for all and speaking to truth and speaking truth to power daily. This week, this week, my past story met the current unfolding oppression of LGBTQ people in the United Methodist Church. As the LGBTQ plus advocacy coordinator for the, this conference, there is now a new sense of urgency which was not there a week earlier. As we are a denomination now caught up for a real fight, a real struggle for justice, for hope, and for love. My task, my job description became startlingly clear. In a denomination in which LGBTQ people were made to feel like we are second class citizens. In which our love, wrote one friend, our love is harmful and alive. My job, my job as of this week is simple, straightforward. I am to work with and advocate for every LGBTQ person who is clergy, lay leader, or laity in the Oregon-Idaho United Methodist Church Conference, making us, in this conference, a leader in the United Methodist Church and the safe harbor for other LGBTQ people after a week of hate and despair. And by God, we're going to do it. Here's the thing. While many of us and our attention was all focused on St. Louis, people outside of St. Louis were also experiencing heightened challenges this week to their very existence. 
the vulnerability of our existence, the fragileness of life, the possibility of suffering, incredible challenges in daily life as a person, as a community of faith, as a nation, as a world. That didn't stop just because a group of Methodists were meeting in, in, in St. Louis. The world continued to unravel, in which everything suddenly feels like an attack, an assault on our everyday life, or the life in the community in which we serve God daily for the good of the world. For example, this congregation <coughs> has been concerned about and has supported the Shul family in incredible ways. We've all been watching it within the conference. Y'all have been incredible. As we watched the plight and now the beautiful recovery of Clementine, though there was no doubt that the challenges before her and her family are yet to come. Beyond this community, Arctic blast will now descend upon this country in March, bringing in the coldest weather ever on history. As this new weather pattern of climate change emerges, as we just witnessed the third coldest February in Oregon history. The failure of talks with the nuclear nation known as North Korea advanced the nuclear clock, tick-tock, tick-tock, to closer to 12 midnight. Gun control seems like a fantasy, a surreal kind of weird world reality. Another white police officer was found not guilty in the death of a young black man, Stefan Clark, in California. And the voices of nationalism. People hugging flags, xenophobia and bigotry grows in volume, not decrease, grows in volume, especially towards those who come from the southern parts of our border. And the rising tide of refugee crisis feels like it will soon flood stable nations. At the end of the day, the question is, is there no end? Is there no end to the sense of fragility, of vulnerability, whether bidden or unbidden? This is where the hidden grace and the presence of godly love breaks through our darkness, comforts us and pulls us in closer in our vulnerability and makes intimate love with us as we reach out and are reached out to by the gospel story like we heard today, which is a clarion call through the drum beats of fear. And the story of Jesus, a surreal encounter between the Son of God with Moses and Elijah and Jesus among the masses, we, found a well, we find a well-known pattern of reframing and reimagining our stories as we place them carefully in the story of God's unending, undying love for this world. For God so loved the world, we run over the rest, that he gave his only Son. This is a story of transfiguration, a story that reminds us all that the self-propelling movement of transfiguration is not a once-in-a-lifetime encounter with the holy, but is present each and every day, beautifully lived out by Christ's Spirit among us in this community, in which Christ sets the pattern for us and how we are to live with the daily challenges and joys, the vulnerabilities and the calamities, the drama and the comedy of life. Or to quote the writer, Presbyterian writer at that, in her book, Gilead, Marilyn Robinson writes that, that it seems sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation, this earth, and turns it to radiance. A moment of transfiguration, a pattern of hope 
right before our eyes if we open if we open them are self-aware. So herein lies the pattern of hope found within Luke's gospel, which opens with these words, eight days later. That's what it started with, eight days later, in which Jesus has been incredibly busy. So I looked up earlier the other parts of Luke 9 to see what Jesus had been doing and why he seemed to be so tired that he needed time away. It began this way. Jesus begins with the healing and the preaching and the teaching and takes time to let the disciples know what is their specific purpose and mission on earth and then sends them out, not with a hail and farewell, but with the charge to proclaim the news of the realm of God while healing those who are ill. The next day, Herod has already thought that he killed John, but thought the stories of Jesus' healing reminded him of John, and therefore he has to go ahead and kill John again. Then, next day, there was the feeding of a 5,000, no small feed. If you've ever tried to put on a dinner party for six, imagine 5,000. Followed by the next day, Peter declaring to Jesus that the crowd sometimes thinks he's the John the Baptist, or he's Elijah, while Peter calls him rightly for the first time. Got it right, got it right, Peter. You are the Messiah of God. This is followed by Jesus' own foretelling of his death and resurrection to his disciples. I always think this about Jesus, probably tired after eight days of doing that kind of work, a little cranky, feeling a little vulnerable, surrounded by the disciples in which there was more time that he took a heave and a hoe and just breathed and said, well, let's try it again, boys. He needed to go and pray. Challenged by the inanities of the human soul in the people who are following him, women and men alike, Jesus calls a few of his followers to stop, pray, and to be open, to be open and strengthened by God's unexpected and ineffable grace, instructed by God's own voice, and empowered to continue on the path that Jesus set, set before them, no matter where it leads, no matter where Jesus goes. And the conversation that Jesus has with the patriarchs, with Moses and Elijah, Jesus tells the disciples what is to be expected of him and what will be expected of them as well. So they get to this time, to this place on the uh, at the top of their Mount Tabor, in which Jesus takes his disciples and does what Jesus always does when he's tired and feeling vulnerable. He prays. Once upon the top of the mountain to which they have come to pray, the miracle then occurs. The first miracle. Jesus' appearance changes before them, becoming bedazzlingly white, in which Jesus himself becomes one in community with Moses and Elijah, who aren't just figures from history, but figures who are the stories that are older than old. They embody Hebrew Scripture. With Moses and Elijah in conversation with Jesus, as many commentaries write and suggest, this is when Jesus departs from his mountaintop experience and is now on his new exodus. There was the exodus of Moses, and now Jesus is on his own journey. In which Jesus will lead all of God's people, you and I included, out of slavery to sin and death and bring us all home into the household of God, to the promised inheritance, to the new creation being part of the realm of God's love in which the whole world will be redeemed, even the United Methodist Church. 
Likewise, the disciples were given a precious opportunity to see and feel what it is to be present, always, in the light and glory of God's creation, including us, we have that opportunity. But yet on this day, it bursts forth in new ways in which Jesus, Jesus changes his own appearance. And their eyes were practically blinded, as Moses were when he received the tablet, and they didn't know what to do. Peter experienced such intimacy at the moment with God that he wanted to stay on the mountaintop forever and cling to it. I'm going to build three shrines. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Is that good? What do you like the idea? I just love this idea. Thankfully, as Paul reminds us in his letters, we too can enjoy the intimacy with God and community, greeting one another with unveiled faces. But herein lies the second story. Earlier in the week, Rick had given me the scripture for this week. And it was the first story. I said, we have to add the second one. Because they go together like two peas in a pod. After the mountaintop experience, Jesus comes down from the mountain back to the people meeting their needs. You see, we heard, and Rick read those words, in which we heard on the mountaintop God's voice saying, This is my son. Listen to him. Ringing in their ears and their heads, Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain into the crush of people in the crowd below who yearn, who are desperate for healing and wholeness. Then Jesus comes face to face with a dad who is beyond desperate, in which I thought of Rick and his family in which God's power of love is dramatically revealed in what happens next, when the dad, sounding ever so much like God the parent, looks at Jesus and says to Jesus, Look at my son. He is my only child. Echoing the very words of God above, This is my son, my only son. Listen to him. The stories of the almost inaccessible story of transfiguration now connects with the accessible story of the boy's healing. Since the disciples were unable to help the young boy, Jesus, of course, heals the boy, showing us once again what God's love looks like and sounds like, but this time without all the light and the busyness of glory, but just as real and gives the child back to the parent. And the words that follow, all, all, all were astounded at the greatness of God, astounded by the greatness and the glory of God, who is present and calls us to listen, who, who, who is present and able to heal a dad's only boy. Just as astounded as Peter, James, and John were on the top of the mountain, with the vision of Moses and Elijah is Jesus. Friends, the United Methodist Church is going to be okay. Just like the Presbyterians, we had to figure it out. Some left, but the majority stayed. We're going to figure out these next steps. It's already happening. As a denomination, we will do so individually and collectively, not only today, but into our tomorrows. 
And we will do what God has just given us an example to do. We will listen to God. And we will also look at the little boy, the little girl, and remember what matters so much. For remember, our work is not about creating walls and excluding people from communities of faith or preserving dead and rotting institutions at the cost of relationships and love. Our work is loving the world just as God in Christ did and does. Our work is to love the world just as it is as God in Christ did and does. So remember, first, as the gospel reminds us, God is not done with us at all. The power of God's love is present now, and we get glimpses of God's love, tastes of divine glory in the everydayness of our lives because we live in a world that is absolutely transparent, in which God shines through it all, all the time. Like our ancestors before us, let us remember that we encounter God anywhere and everywhere. For the God who was with our ancestors before us, wherever they went, that same God is with us. And if we call upon this God, we will feel God's presence keenly upon our lives. If only for a moment. Second, notice the balancing act of mountaintop withdrawal listening to God and returning to daily life and seeing Christ in each other. The Benedictines call this practice of living balanced daily lives, aura et labora, work and prayer, in which the goal is always to balance the two and not let one outweigh the other. And finally, we here gathered today, we are to live transfigured lives. It isn't a once-upon-a-time encounter with the holy. It is an everyday, how-de-do, how-are-you. Again, to quote Marilyn Robinson, we are almost always potentially in a place of transfiguration, even in this congregation and when we walk outside, where God breathes on the poor gray embers of creation and turns it into radiance for a moment, for a year, for the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again, and to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light, yet wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness, a little mindfulness to see, to hear, to feel, to touch, and to be touched. And it is that, my friend, to bring the mind of Christ that makes all the difference in the world. And the people of God said, Amen. Yeah. It's with the mind of Christ that we come to the table. It's with the mind of Christ and God's love for us that we gather together in this act of worship. On the night when Christ handed himself over for our sake, he gathered his disciples together for a meal, and he changed it a little bit. He took the bread, and after giving thanks to his Father in heaven, he shared it with his disciples, and he said, Take and eat, all of you. This bread represents my body, which is given for you. As often as you eat this, know 
that I come down the mountain to you, that my glory is revealed in the mountaintop, my glory is revealed down among the people, my love is for all. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks to his Father in heaven, he shared it with his disciples, and he said, take and drink, all of you. This cup represents my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, know that all your sins are forgiven. Every failure, mistake, wrongdoing, they are done away with. And there's absolutely nothing, nothing that can stand in the way of God's love for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I'll invite our communion service to come forward at this time to prepare the table and to serve one another. Here in the United Methodist Church, we celebrate an open table, and what that means is absolutely everybody is welcome to come forward and receive communion. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter what tradition you've been a part of. doesn't even matter where your thoughts are and where, you're, where you are in your faith. If you have a desire to partner with God in love for this world, if you have a desire to connect with Christ this morning, you are welcome this morning. In just a little bit, our usher, or in just a moment, our ushers will invite you forward. We start in the, we go row by row, and we start in the back of the room and work our way forward. Uh, come down the center aisle, approach somebody that's holding a piece of bread. We'll break off a small piece for you and place it into your hands. If you take that bread then and dip it in the cup of juice just a little ways, and you can consume it that way. After you've received communion, if you want to take a moment to pray here at the chancel steps, that's always welcomed and encouraged. After that, we'll head back to our seats down the side aisles, and we'll continue singing and praising God together. We do have gluten-free elements available for you as well, and uh, those will be on this side. And uh, if you need gluten-free elements, they'll be available on this side as well. As soon as the elements are ready and the servers are ready, you are welcome to come forward. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. Feast on Christ in your hearts through faith and with thanksgiving. You may come.
Will you stand and receive the benediction? As you go into this world, know that Christ is God's own Messiah. God says, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. And therefore, go into this world loving and serving as Christ loves and serves us. Go in peace. Amen. The band's going to sing our closing song, Take to the World. Thank you for coming, everyone. We'll see you later.